Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Tomas Simonsen Balmbra. And my name is Svaro Ogor. And today we are discussing La Casa Lobo, or The Wolf House, a Chilean stop-motion movie directed by Cristobal Leon and Joaquin Concina. And it's from 2018. And it's starring Amalia Casai as Maria and Rainer Krause as Wolf. Yeah, as always, we talk extensively about the plot and themes. So we recommend that you've seen the movie already, unless, of course, you don't mind spoilers. So what is the plot of this movie? So it has kind of a meta plot. It presents itself as, would you say, like an instructional video. First, you see some archive footage of this idyllic colony for Germans in Chile that produce honey. And so it's kind of like a, a film shown to kids, basically. Yeah, sort of a propaganda movie. Right. And in the film, we follow a young woman called Maria. After we see like this little bit of archive footage, it goes over to this animated style where Maria flees from the colony and comes to a house in the woods where she meets two pigs that kind of change into kids and she, she's kind of raising them and she's... She's kind of turning them almost into humans. It's sort of weird and bizarre. And they sort of have a family situation. All the while there's a wolf outside that's threatening and kind of haunting their, I wouldn't say idyllic life, but the life they're trying to have. So what happens is that they end up not having any food and they can't really leave because of the wolf and their children threaten to eat Maria. So she kind of invites the wolf in and he says that he's been there all the time. He was in their mind. Yeah. Essentially, all the characters turn into trees and the film kind of ends and goes back into this instructional video that tells you as an audience or as children watching this that uh, you can't escape the colony. Yeah, it's sort of allegorical in a sense. Instructional allegory or... Yeah, kind of a, a meta theme there. So it's kind of like a dark fairy tale that invokes like Red Riding Hood and the Three Little Pigs. So there's a lot of fairy tale and folklore elements in it. It's an extremely visual film. Like There's a lot of visual metaphors and symbols and things that happen. And the plot itself has a lot of imagery that's very loaded. And there's always a lot of ambivalence around what you're actually watching and what's going on. It's quite confusing and dreamlike and yeah. very, very strong imagery and kind of strange animation. And, and Yeah, it's, it's like a fever dream, really. You're yeah. kind of stuck in this very ambiguous world of, of dark woods and threatening creatures. And there's no real hero. Or Everything's ambivalent. So, I mean, you have basically two characters. It's Maria and, and the wolf. And there's two voice actors, Amelia Kasai, who's Maria, and Rene Krause, is the wolf. And they kind of have voiceovers that follow the plot. And they don't really animate mouths to match characters. It's more more like a... Storytelling, almost. Like yeah. a fairy tale storytelling. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it and, and it does have that sort of vibe of 60s and 70s Europeans, children's animation, yeah. almost. Just done in this really weird art project style. The style... Uh, really invokes for me at least like the really early short films of David Lynch and yeah, like totally. the animated shorts of Jan Svankmeyer, this Eastern European style. Yeah, those are the two directors that it's really quite reminiscent of to me as well. Yeah. Uh, it really does invoke those directors' works and yet it also has this very clear like homage to children's animation and mm. children's storytelling. Mm. And of course it's all part of the framing device of this being this cult's instructional video. And it's all very creepy and eerie, of mm. course. 
And that's just on its own, you know, without delving too deep already into what lies beyond yeah. or beneath the story. It's unsettling just on its own. Yeah, there is like a historical context that lies beneath as an inspiration for this story. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what it looks like. This is an animated film. It mixes different types of animation, like primarily it's large paintings on walls that move about and there's a lot of object animation and it switches up between using like puppets or sculptural elements and paintings and yeah, different it, surfaces. It feels like it's constantly switching between dimensions too because the paintings on the walls are two-dimensional. Sometimes they overlap on a 3D object. Sometimes a 3D object turns into the 2D object on the wall and vice versa. It feels very like strangely moving between dimensions and sort of modes. And also the styles vary a bit and it's always changing and fluctuating in this sort of metamorphic way. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it messes up your perception because you're looking at, I mean, it's it's beautifully animated. It has kind of a, a rough style, but it's also very fluid. And constantly you're looking at a surface as if it's like a film on its own. And then it kind of shifts away and becomes something that leaves its own frame. You kind of have to switch up. You're never quite settled in the style. You're always underfooted by what's going on visually. Yeah, it is deeply unsettling the way it's done. And it's very, very unpleasant and disorienting mm. in, a, in a sense. And the way the art style and the art direction of it is mm. very particular and very creepy. Like the humans, they never really look quite like humans. Mm. They have these sort of weird changing paper mache faces that just tape keeps moving across them, yeah. paint keeps leaving and appearing. Everything keeps sort of like disintegrating and healing itself in a way that's both kind of enthralling and also just very, very weird and unpleasant in this sort of bodily sense of these bodies never staying put, like mm. they're always changing. Yeah, every element, like every surface is constantly, as you say, fluctuating as if there's insects crawling underneath or yeah. there's, a, there's an uneasiness about the world. It never settles. It's like decomposition almost. Yeah. Like you see these stop motion or like um, where you see maybe something breaking down in nature or mm. whatever or mushrooms growing. It's, yeah. it's reminiscent of that type of thing where these sort of microbial elements that sort of distort the bigger bodies. It's very, very disturbing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, as you say, it's constantly like deconstructing and reconstructing, but into something that's slightly different. I mean, you can recognize the characters because Maria, she has like a blue dress and she has uh, blonde hair and blue eyes. But her shape also changes a lot and her visage is often different in a way. Yeah, yeah they're never quite the same. And sometimes it's even more explicit, like a scene will start with like there's a disembodied hand over in a corner and then it creeps towards the character and suddenly, yeah. you know, the hand is uh, attached and you, you understand okay, it was part of Maria all along, but mm. it didn't start that way. It's yeah. very, like, weird and bizarre. Yeah, a lot of the time the bodies are kind of assembling as it goes. And, like, as you say, hands or parts of faces, they come and go a bit. And one of the really things that I find quite both visually interesting and unusual is often you have a character, let's say it's a, a, one of the puppet masking tape characters, and they're kind of painted on, like, they have colours and stuff, but then the paint on top of that character starts to move alongside the wall, and it sort of leaves, like, the shell of the physical 
shape in black or in white or some monotone color and the character is essentially walking away from its own body and just going along the wall and the, the camera kind of follows uh, yeah it's like an insect or a crustacean that's molding and leaves behind this pale carapace yeah. of its former shape and like the shape is there but the entity is moving on yeah. somewhere else it's sort of visually very interesting and disgusting at the same time yeah and it uses a lot of like it uses a lot of the shapes in the rooms like doors or windows or objects in the room paintings and sometimes it kind of uses them as objects on their own and then kind of wipes them out by just covering everything in white and then it kind of redraws on top of them so they're no longer the object they were it's the physical thing is still there but it's now like a hermetically sealed box instead of a lampshade yeah and there's these like waves of paint coming and mm. sometimes it seems to be like just to clear the sort of canvas mm. to draw more but it feels very like tidal waves of yeah. inexorable sort of motion and color and, and shape continually creating and, and sort of destroying it's uh, mesmerizing mm. and the paints or the animated objects they're always kind of driving our gaze so that the camera moves along with it like it's a lot of the camera movement is motivated by like the shifts and the waves of the paint uh, as it goes along but it's quite interestingly made in a filmatic because it's almost like an animated one take where you don't have obvious cuts like it's kind of like Hitchcock's rope or Birdman it'll go close into an object and then it'll shift to a new location because this film was made through a series of exhibitions where the two artists, Cassina and Leon, they had residencies at different art galleries and they'd build a set or they'd use the walls in the art gallery and they would paint there. And when their residency was ending, they would kind of move the camera close into an object and that would be the end of that shoot in a sense. So they would be continuously working for something like, uh, you know, a couple of months or uh, however long they were, were there. And that would be an open space where people could also come and look at what they were doing. So they, they had a, a kind of an ingenious method for... They, they spent five years on this film. Yeah, I was about to say, mm. the time this must have taken is kind of incredible because all this incredibly detailed animation mm. would have to be so time-consuming and labor-consuming. So it's very interesting that they did it in this way. It seems like one of the only like sensible ways of going about the project. Yeah, it's very clever, really. I think they had something like 15 exhibitions during this time, which is a lot in itself. And it's kind of a thing that helped them to fund it. And it's kind of a, a motivating factor as well, because they're kind of they're in Paris for this while, and then they're in Chile, and then they're moving around the world as well, doing their stuff, and they meet different people. And I think it gave the process of vitality that's quite interesting. And yeah, it is very vital. But also, like, the fact that it's stop motion, like, everything is a cut in this movie. Mm. So the cuts don't really feel like cuts, even mm. though, like, they move places. The objects are still there. It does flow in that it, there's no traditional cuts in that way, but... Like everything is very sort of jagged and mm. feels very weird and yeah. the motion is unnatural and like it all ties into this very unsettling feeling of this sort of bizarre house where nothing is as it seems. Mm. Yeah, uh, they're not precious about things looking smooth. Like all the surfaces are off, that's one thing, but also the camera movements. They're well done, they're, they're very efficient, but they're not precious about it looking rough. A lot no. of the materials they use, it's like masking tape, it's like cheap paint. They use furniture they find nearby. It only works because they're really good at painting and animating. Yeah. Because all the stuff that they're using is cheap objects that you can get anywhere and you can work with them very intensely. And also they don't hide when they use like a, a string to hold something up so that it doesn't fall over. They keep that it's in the movie. It's just part of the process yeah. and it adds to the whole thing. 
I must say, I found it really disgusting. Like watching it, it made me almost queasy the way things moved and yeah. the, and the sort of the layered bodies of like frayed newspaper mm. and stuff. It just looks really disgusting. Like the eye movements and and the faces and the sort of disintegrating bodies and everything. It's really really unsettling. Well, I found it really unsettling. Yeah. It is beautiful, but it's beautiful in a horrific way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very uneasy. Yeah. It's always kind of putting you off in one way or another. And like yeah. the sound design is also really good, I think. Yeah, very good. Like the very low-key musical direction and soundscapes and stuff. It's all very, very unsettling. Mm. The sparse choir sounds and stuff. And they often have like either the characters whispering or that you have, you know, sounds close to the mic. Yeah, there's a lot of, of close miking and proximity effect to the vocals and a lot of very low decibel speaking, mm. a lot of whispering. So it feels very, very intimate in a way that's very off-putting because you're in this disgusting situation. So it feels like somebody's putting their child to sleep and whispering mm. like some morbid shit into their ears. Mm. And uh, it's very, very disgusting and very effective. I like how when a scene kind of changes, which it typically does within the painting yeah. by shifting location, basically wiping either with everything with white or just switching things around a bit. The sound quality also can change, like as if it's in a big hall or outside. I think they did a really good job in making just sound. It feels almost documentary. It's kind of lo-fi, but really realistic. They're not going for like beautifully produced, like technically mixed studio sound. They're going for something that feels much more authentic in a yeah, way. Yeah, it feels very right for it. It sounds good. Like it doesn't sound bad at all, but it also sounds kind of quirky with the sound effects they've added. Like when candles are popping up and burning down mm. and stuff, there's these popping sounds yeah. that sound very just like something you'd see in a children's sort of animation mm. or, or hear in a children's animation or other. So it works very well, but it's very well thought out and conceptualized and put into action. I really like, as animation filmmakers, they have a very distinct filmatic style that's very much their own. I mean, you can see parallels to Lynch or, or Svankmeyer, but they have very much their own way of relating to the camera and relating to editing. It's unmistakably their own artistic product. It's very raw. It feels almost like this punk mentality of mm. going through stop motion animation. The materials are also like unprocessed and mm. just almost cobbled together at the second you animate it. Not bothering with removing elements that hold up the figures straight tape parts or paint specks that just fly everywhere dust particles everything is just always in motion like they just fucking keep moving on of course if they were going to be meticulous about it it would have a completely different look and wouldn't mm. work as well as it did at all it's also in service of the project but yeah. at, at the same time it's quite visually distinct as their own thing even though it's reminiscent of other things mm. sort of almost emotionally rather than visually I saw some some interviews with them uh, where they were talking about the process and um, apparently they had like a series of rules, like 10 rules or something, kind of like dogma films that they set out as guiding system. Because when they're making the film over so many years, like you need some boundaries that's very clear. Like one of the rules was that everything was material and could be transformed, like furniture, cardboard, painting. And you're allowed to use any sort of material, really. Like they're not precious about it. They use the cheapest materials they can find. And they're not really thinking about continuity in that sense. I love that, though, because there is continuity in the sort of primal shapes of the characters. They're almost like uh, archetypal. Yeah. You have the blonde hair of that certain length, the sort of pale face and the red lips and the blue eyes, mm. which, of course, the fact that she's blonde and blue eyed and, mm. and the pigs 
when they grow up first they are dark haired mm-hmm. and stuff and then they transform into these beautiful sort of Aryan children with mm. the honey that they get it's all very specific and the visual imagery of the sort of archetypal forms of these characters sort of maintain their integrity throughout these changing and weird shapes they take mm. throughout the movie so there is continuity just not in the sort of materials and how they're sort of constructed on the spur of the moment yeah and like the characters, they can materialize in any sort of material, really. And like the shapes and the ways they move, they can change. And it has like almost like a, a ghostly haunted quality to it. It does. You know, it just struck me. It sort of reminds me of Rigit or uh, yeah. the Kingdom of Lars von Trier's TV show. There's a lot of sort of disgusting visual elements of these like bodies and, mm. and sort of the structural integrity of how they're sort of maintaining their shapes and stuff that reminds me of that in a sort of disgusting mm. way. And a lot of times they sort of start out at these skeletal shapes mm. or just a head and mm. then they sort of maybe build up to some body, maybe disintegrate again mm. and it's all very disgusting. And to a certain degree it's sort of hard to pay attention to the particulars of the story at sometimes yeah. because you're just so focused on the visuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, dominates. And also the visuals are very like in contrast to the story where they're describing something nice or cozy or whatever. And mm. it's just like, that's not, mm. that's not nice. Yeah, they're singing <laughs> some song or, or there's like a fairy tale element that's yeah. spoken of. and or Like the Christmas scene. It's like, yeah, oh, it's Christmas. They have a lovely Christmas tree. And it's just these pig humans that get clothes. and Like, it's so disgusting. Yeah, these transformations of these pigs is really like, they're mostly pig shapes, but then the hand is human and they're kind of transferring a bit back and forth yeah. until they eventually end up as kids. She names them Pedro and um, Anna, I think. It feels very potent and, and kind of dangerous in a way. Like there's something really unpredictable about it. You're not quite sure how to relate and what's really going on. As you say, the visuals, they're so overpowering that paying attention to like a plot, it's very difficult. The plot is sort of amorphous and weird too. Yeah. Like, okay, she escaped this compound mm. and she enters this house and it's all very like, okay, this is the wolf like outside talking to her. Like what's going on? She meets these pigs and they turn into humans. And like, what are they eating up until that point? Like mm. later it becomes a plot point that they don't have food, but like none of the real like necessities are even touched upon mm. until that point. Mm. Everything's like not there until the plot necessitates it. And it feels almost like a fable or like some sort of yeah. moral tale, right? It doesn't, it does, they're, they're not real humans. They're yeah. just these symbols of whatever. And it feels like the sort of narrators or author or like plot of directors are very like disingenuous in, in what they're doing yeah and except of course that the moral of the story is very ambiguous and like what's being communicated to you is a little bit unclear and feels a bit um unsettling somehow i felt it was pretty clear at the end of the movie or at least that's how i thought uh. of it because like in, in the end you have this imagery of the Auschwitz gate and stuff mm. so i feel like it's a lot about race and about the sort of enemy growing within like i view it as jews and Maria is sort of treating these pigs, you know, in the framing device probably of this this Bavarian sect probably like views Jews as inhuman, right? Mm. So you treat them as humans, but really they're just out to get you in the end. They're going to murder you or mm. eat you when they get the chance or the story necessitates. So you have to sort of let the wolf danger like violence or whatever in and sort of cleanse the house. Right. Because it's almost easy to forget that this is a construct of like this colony 
Yeah. That you're not actually following uh, Marie as a character and the things that happen to her. It kind of works on several levels. So maybe we should talk a bit about, like, I mean, it's not directly an allegory. It doesn't function as a, as a very clear allegory, at least, but it has a very direct historical inspiration. Yeah, it's sort of, it's like a dark fairy tale based on a true story or a true setting. Yeah. So uh, there's this colony started by a German man called Paul Schaefer. And he worked originally with like welfare work for children in a local church in Germany. And he was fired at the end of the 1940s because he was accused of sexual abuse against children. But he wasn't criminally prosecuted or anything. He was just fired from his position. And then he worked a bit as an independent preacher and formed a community in, in Germany. Um, sort of a church? Wasn't it like a church? Well, uh, it became sort of... a cult. Yeah. But it was an organization that was dedicated to working with children at risk. And he got a lot of influence and they had a lot of members, like people working at farms without pay and that sort of stuff. And there was a lot of allegations of child abuse. Um, so that's what happens, right? These stories start re-emerging about him performing gruesome child abuse. And so he kind of gets sidelined again in the 60s. So he organizes like several hundred members of this community to move to Chile. And among that, there's a lot of, you know, Nazis or non-prosecuted Nazis from war times in Germany. Yeah, some people say ex-Nazis, but to my knowledge, they were just Nazis, basically. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they... They never repented. Yeah. So the colony kind of presents itself. There. It's called um, Colonial Dignidad. Colonial Dignidad. Right. And it houses this cult. And they kind of project this image of harmony and inclusive, you know, communal work. Yeah, hard work and a simple lifestyle. This sort of pre-World War II, sort of Bavarian countryside, idyllic, almost like Amish uh, way of life, where everything's seemingly simple and, and beautiful. And they're like producing butter and products. And Schaefer, he kind of manages to get contacts within like the politics and stuff. So he's in good standing like with the political side of Chile. They also do produce a lot of propaganda and yeah. stuff to make it seem like they're sort of in this perfect society and also to sort of negate any uh, stories that will eventually come from this colony of more child abuse and stuff like that. So sort of preemptively saying, no, 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 this is a wonderful place. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this colony goes through a serious change with the Pinochet's dictatorship where it basically houses a lot of his... Um, I mean, they're using it as a prison camp and they're torturing a lot of the enemies of Pinochet. Not and, even a prison camp, more just a place to interrogate and execute people. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Yeah. And and a lot of these, uh, these Nazis, they're very willing to uh, share their experience of how to, you know, brutalize people and torture and... Interrogation methods, basically, of the Gestapo and the SS. Right. It's fucking horrible. And there's a, there's a man who escapes in 1966 called Wolfgang Müller, who starts to spread the news of what's actually going on. He moves to Germany and gets a citizenship there and kind of uh, helps. Uh, there's another guy who escapes, uh, Heinz Kuhn, and he confirms like Müller's uh, accusations. But, you know, it, it continues on as long as Pinochet is there. And They're not willing to prosecute them. I mean, they're in league with them, so... 
it goes on then. As far as I understand, it's like not until like the 90s that this place is actually properly shut down. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just the political tortures and murders. It's also the rampant child abuse that goes on there that's not touched upon at all. That just keeps going. I mean, this guy who was a convicted child abuser, well, not a convicted because they didn't choose to convict, but back in those days, you often didn't convict people on child abuse because it was difficult to prove and stuff. But for his whole life, he was basically known as a child abuser and he kept working with children in need and then isolating children in this compound i can't even imagine to begin to it's so describe this. it's so horrible and you know at some point they don't have enough kids in the uh, colony itself because they're not producing enough children basically yeah, they're aging beyond his preferred so they start getting some chilean people families into the colony as well and basically they i'm not sure if they kidnap but they you know, there's something going on with a lot of Chilean people who grew up only speaking German and... There was kidnapping, as far as I know. There's definitely been allegations of that. Yeah, a lot of allegations. Mm. They had a system where kids did not belong in family units. All the adults were uncles and aunts, and the kids kind of belonged to the community itself. So you kind of absolved the family structure itself. So they're completely helpless. And like when some of these young boys who are abused start to get old enough to talk about what's going on, they get sent into shock therapy and like there's no way out for these. No, I mean, it's one common tactic in a cult to separate people into particular castes or groups. It's kind of reminiscent of Plato's Republic or in India or like there's so many different examples of using caste systems as sort of power dynamics to mm. control the populace. But especially in, in a cult, it becomes extremely sinister. Like children are torn away from their parents and put in this sort of first class of people and they're age-based. So you have like four or five different uh, types of people depending on your age. And I can just imagine being a child there without parents and basically this sort of everlasting uncle or whatever the fuck they call him. He's just everybody's uncle. Yeah. <laughs> always present, always in charge. And he also sort of viewed women as demonic and creatures of innate sin. And so there were a lot of beatings and violence and he viewed violence as something like beautiful and cathartic. So it sounds like a fucking hellhole. Quite reminiscent to a film we were going to talk about, but haven't yet. We mentioned it in a previous podcast, but uh, Prophet's Prey by Amy Berg, which is a documentary about a similar situation. Sounds very similar. Yeah. Maybe um, without the political murders and stuff. But. Mm. So maybe we'll get back to that documentary at some yeah. point, which is very good. So that's the historical context is, is quite similar. I mean, the historical context almost makes the movie pleasant by comparison. Yeah. It's so, so horrible. Then, like, on top of that, you have this idyllic, Bavarian, creepy cult atmosphere that makes it reminiscent of Midsommar, or, or, like, almost, like, super caricature of a cult. Like, you have this sort of idyllic exterior and this dark, horrible interior. Right. It's just, uh, it's almost beyond words. And there hasn't really been a proper reckoning um, in Chile, as far as I've understood. I know that some of the kids who grew up in that society... Because, you know, they didn't have education or anything. But I think there was one Chilean guy who grew up. I think he left when he was 20 or something. And he became a, a lawyer and is suing like the Chilean government and the German government as well. Because a lot of them were German citizens. And today, as far as I understand, that area, that the colony that's no longer a colony as such, it's been turned into something called the Bavaria. Kind of like a tourist attraction place. Yeah, it's a tourist resort. 
has to be the most haunted resort of all time. Like you're literally sleeping on the graves of thousands of uh, political prisoners yeah. tortured and executed. And the screams of children has to ring out through the night. Like it's a fucking haunted place. It has to be. I can sort of see why you wouldn't recognize what's been going on there. But at the same time, it feels very disingenuous to bury that history. Turn it into a fucking memorial for the victims. Christ's sake. It's uh, such a sad and horrific story. And a lot of the people who perpetrated this got away with it. I know that Paul Schaefer was convicted, but he only served like four years in jail before he died. And, yeah, he was uh, quite old at that point. And I think there was like 16 prosecutions and six convictions against people who were responsible. I know Paul Schaefer's right-hand man, he fled to Germany and Germany dropped prosecution against yeah. him for whatever reason. Mm. Germany has had a really troubled past of giving sentences to war criminals and and like ex-Nazis and stuff, and in general, have not been very good at prosecuting these types of political crimes. Yeah, it's a movie trope, basically, like uh, Nazis who fled to America or South America and started societies or hiding out and doing torture stuff. Yeah, like I mentioned to you before we started recording this, um, I saw a documentary the other day, which was about the accountant of Auschwitz. And in it, they describe a lot of Nazi war crimes and stuff. And there's this interview with the prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials. And he basically says that most of that was just symbolic in the nth degree because they couldn't even begin to prosecute all the war crimes that went on during World War II. And so you end up with this small symbolic number of convictions, most of which were overturned within five years. And mm. you end up with like a handful of people who actually served seriously time for this and of course a couple of executions of the top people in charge but even so it's not like until just the past 10 years where you're starting to see convictions again against like people who were guards at Auschwitz and Birkenau and all these yeah how convenient when they're that old yeah basically I mean the entire judicial structure of Germany after the war. They were all Nazis or ex-Nazis, right? Mm. So it's no wonder, like the German legal system has been through a lot of issues and has had real problems sort of reconciling itself with the past. And so I'm not surprised in the least that Paul Schaefer's right-hand man sort of got away and didn't face legal persecution for it. And it's sad, honestly, and it, there has to be so many of these victims and, you know, families of people tortured and murdered there, families of you know, kidnap children and stuff that just should have retribution or like legal justice for what's been going on there. And it seems like the governments of Germany is just trying to forget it. And, and mm. Chile seems to be dealing with some of it. At least they have had some some luck in sentencing and so so forth. But a lot of them have just fled Chile. So And, you know, all this knowledge kind of increases the unpleasantness of, of this movie in a sense. And yeah. It doesn't really relate so strongly to the plot itself, but as an underlying unease, it kind of uh, informs a lot of how that world works and how uneasy and haunted it is. Yeah, it feels haunted. It feels like a haunted movie. And then a lot of that unease and the sort of backstory of uh, Cordia Dignidad and the stuff, it's, it feels like it permeates every aspect of the movie, even though it's not like a direct representation of it. It's more like an emotional echo of it. And plus the framing device of it being like this sort of found footage almost restored and uh, sort of viewed for the first time again. It's very disconcerting and haunting and weird and uncomfortable. Yeah, the historical element of it kind of grounds it as well a bit because in and of itself, just the animation, I think for a lot of people could be uh, quite inaccessible like as an abstract story. So this kind of framing device 
to me at least grounds it a bit into something more graspable. Yeah, but at the same time, it is quite ungraspable. Mm. Like the story itself is very hard to grasp when you're watching the movie. I'm not sure how you would sort of go about making that more explicit without making it more boring or mm. I, like it's it's a very complex project and I think it's admirable the way they went about it. It's quite confusing and I can understand why somebody would feel very like disturbed and yeah. maybe not get into it because I think it can be quite inaccessible. But at the same time, I think the visuals are so strong. I feel like you're sitting at the end of your seat or you're gaping all the way through because yep. you're kind of continuously assaulted by like changes of perception like one of the things that works really well for me is that let's say you have a character or you see a wall and you see the frame of a door and they kind of use that as a framing device for a section where like an eye pops up and a character exists in there but then the character kind of turns away in a very uh, like the three-dimensional perspective of that character turning away is really well done so that feels like it's its own world and then that kind of shifts over to another surface it kind of breaks the illusion continuously as well and yeah, like there's all these sort of different planes that it's going through. Yeah, you know, like the the sort of sense of space is very strange constantly. But I would also say, like in terms of it feeling a bit inaccessible, like it's never comfortable. It's yeah. always uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's very un unrelenting in that sense. You never really have room to breathe mm. while watching it. I'm sort of glad it's not three hours. I'm yeah. more than happy with an hour, 30 minutes or whatever, yeah. how long it is. That works fine. But it's a very like negative space, I feel. It's very like psychically dangerous. It becomes overwhelming, I think. Yeah. I, like that's, I would imagine the intention too. Like, I don't know the intention, but it feels very deliberately existing in this sort of liminal negative space where you're not sure what's going on. Anything can happen. Yeah, like the background artistically as well for the film is quite interesting. As I said, these two artists, they belong to a kind of an artist collective called Diluvio, which is created in 2007 in Santiago. And there's a lot of lot of other people. There's one of the collaborators they've worked a lot with as well is a guy called Niles Atala. Not explicitly with this production, but they started out making shorts in very much the style of La Casa Lobo. So 2007, they made their short film Lucia, and they followed that with another short called Lewis from 2008. And these two characters, they kind of intertwined their, their perspective of each of their movies. So they work very interesting together, these two short films. And it's also like a room with paint moving around with characters and this kind of like a haunted feel and a shifting sense of unease as it goes along. But the short films, right? And, and they continued making short films for... 2013, I think, is the last short film before they started on The Wolf House. And then they spent five years. So yeah, 2018, that's when Wolf House comes out. But this is the first feature length? or Yeah. yeah. So they kind of wanted to take the process that they developed with these short films and create a, a larger project using these gallery spaces as a, a means to an end, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, it sort of shows like the animation style and stuff, the sort of dioramas or mise-en-scene of the scenes and everything like that. It feels like it very much would belong in art museum or art gallery or like it does feel like something you you might see in more like shorter mediums. But it's interesting to see an actual full length project like this because it obviously would have taken so much time and effort. So you're also kind of in awe of just the sheer madness of making this. Yeah, yeah. These uh, short films, Lucia and Lewis, you can find them online on Vimeo. You can find a lot of their stuff online, like on this Diluvio website. 
there's a lot of films by other collaborators. Many of them do work in a more or less similar aesthetic, different types of, I mean, there's music videos and all sorts, kind of a mix of performance and experimental and narrative videos. There's a bunch of different stuff. Quite interesting, actually. I do recommend checking out some other of that work. It seems like a really interesting collection of people working. Yeah, it really seems like that. They seem very talented. I would like to see them make uh, like a haunted house for uh, like a theme park. (laughs) Yeah. As far as I understand, they are working on a new film and they kind of set out a new series of rules. Nice. I saw this interview with them on YouTube where they were talking and they had a whiteboard at the back and they said, these are the rules for a new film. You can see it because it was far away. Did they mention any other new rules? No. And they didn't say all the rules for this one either. Well kept secrets. But I guess it's kind of like more something for you as a creator like Lars von Trier is kind of known for making rules for himself to inform the process. And they're very process oriented. They say they're not so concerned with meanings of things as as they go along. They do talk about it, but they view it more as a conversations and they're very invested in like the idea that as creators, they don't own meanings and they're not so interested in explicitly talking about what things mean. Like they use a lot of religious imagery, among other things, and that kind of um, playing around with a bit of pop culture and stuff. And it feels informed, but it's not always clear for us as viewer how it fits in. But I like that though. It's sort of this... The last few generations of sort of postmodern creators, movie makers and stuff, Mm. you are a bit disconnected and you don't really own your own meaning in a sense. I think for a lot of movie makers, it's quite liberating. You don't feel this burden, this weight of having to explain yourself so explicitly all the time. I think it can be a bit freeing. Also in terms of using rules and limiting yourself as a creator can sort of ironically lead to sort of more freedom. So I think also not being very explicit about your meaning can also lead to a sort of plethora of meaning and increased meaning. I think both of those aspects are clearly involved in this movie and, and it works quite well, I think. Yeah, I think it works really well. It really ticks a lot of boxes for me in terms of my taste in, in film and culture. Yeah, it's very intense and it's very contained sort of in, in this claustrophobic house. You are sort of trapped in there. It has this strange sense of space and uh, location and sort of almost this prison-like quality to it. And it's um, fascinating. And all that stuff is quite funny in one sense, because when they talk about it themselves, they say that like they really enjoy the process. I mean, that's why they've chosen to work with that kind of style for so long, like two or three. In this case, they're two people mostly uh, working together, painting and animating and doing stuff every day, like... They describe these rules they use almost as uh, sort of like rules of a game, like football. They're kind of like if the rules are good, you basically just need talent and then you can play. And that kind of frees you and gives you a lot of enjoyment in your work. Yeah, I think so. Like it's analogous to a good game system or like a good board game or a good video game or whatever. If the rules are good, Mm. then it becomes quite easy to have fun with it. So yeah, I totally see that. Yeah. As I said, like, to me, this is really enjoyable. And the fact that the story is kind of dense or like what's happening is kind of dense, it opens up for new viewings. Like you watch it again, you'll notice different things. Like one thing I noticed this time that I didn't really see the first time is like pretty early in the movie when the camera's moving around in one of the first locations, like it's drawing up a window and it's like a square window with like a line horizontal and a line vertical. But it's drawing it up in a way that just for a split second, it's like a swastika. Yeah, that was interesting. I caught that for 
a split <laughs> second, but there is a lot of sort of subliminal Nazi yeah. fascistic imagery and thoughts in this project. Mm. And that also leads to sort of uneasy feeling in addition to like the very intense visuals and stuff. Mm. You said it was like enjoyable. I've, I didn't find it enjoyable at all. I find it very unenjoyable, but that's sort of why I find it fascinating. It's very, very unsettling and intense and raw and yeah. And like with the whole story, the framing device, the backstory, it's just very, very uncomfortable and uh, admirable. I think to me, like aesthetically, it's extremely stimulating. Just the animation style and the way it's always shifting and unpredictable and... It just keeps making me curious and interested and the visuals they just appeal to me very strongly. So I, I am even though it's unsettling, I am I'm really into it at the same time. Yeah. No, I see that. I see that. But I like it's so off putting. And I mean that in a good way. It's mm. so it's so well done and it's sort of <laughs> goal to unsell you mm. and, and make you feel like you're trapped in this house of wolves. Yeah, and it's like one of the really few animated films, like we're talking about this many times, that you know, a feature film that allows itself... I mean, it almost had to come through the short animated film scene. Yeah. And, you know, how would you produce this film, like, in a professional context? I guess, you know, the last couple of years, Netflix have had this uh, Death, Sex and Robot series of where they collect, you know, short animated films by different creators... They're not unpleasant or anything like that, but short films or animated shorts, it's kind of a difficult thing to... I mean, there's a lot of it online, but like if you want to communicate it to a large audience and kind of build a brand, that's not so easy. And I guess I'm hoping to see more of these anthologies, like rich streaming services. They could focus more on that. As far as I understand, there is some of that stuff in the works. Yeah, but it's always sort of been like the shorts have always been the, the realm of outsiders and artists and experimental filmmakers. And, you know, to try out weird new stuff that might mm. like you would have really hard time funding a full-length version of mm. but since they're short form you can really allow yourself to go even crazier mm. and more intense and more experimental and, and stranger and i totally agree that we should see more of it mm. sort of getting attention because there's so much interesting going on yeah. and has always been there's so much and i think this film's done pretty okay it's, i know it went to american cinemas i think it's been on shudder the streaming service for horror you can rent it on vimeo it, it's easy to get a hold of if you know about it actually so, yeah and um, I've, I've seen quite a lot of people talking about it and it seems quite well received mm, uh, in chile yeah it's won awards and stuff and i'm glad it's being talked about also in a more international context mm. like the theme is basically international german and chilean and of course there is both german language in it in addition to the spanish mm. And that too feels very amorphous and weird and the way it sort of flips between those modes. Mm. And using like Red Riding Hood and Three Little Pigs, these fairy tales as a grounding structure in a way or as a visual elements of those things yeah. uh, kind of also makes it more European in general, I guess. Yeah, European or sort of, it does have this almost ancient folkloric mm. feel to it that does feel like it comes from the european folklore context but at the same time you know you have this chilean context and like that mashup is very interesting in terms of what it does with those two things yeah i think this two is one of my favorite examples of folklore in film yeah and uh, folklore in film is often very interesting. I know we talked about it in Antichrist, 
where we both found it very well done. Mm. And I think it's very well done here too, although mm. in a quite different way. But both Antichrist and this movie really use folklore in a you know, really unsettling way. Mm. And it, it often is because it's often dealing with very like primeval and primal urges and sort of mm. ways of explaining the unexplainable nature and stuff. But in this movie, it, it also adds the element of this sort of cult-like narrative mm. and the device of propaganda and indoctrination of children it's just very selling and well done and uh cool movie real cool movie real cool real cool give it two thumbs up yeah and <laughs> five bags of popcorn yeah so thomas do you have a recommendation for me and for anybody else who's interested I do have a recommendation. This film got me thinking a little bit of an animated TV show, like 10 minute episodes. It's kind of similar in its, you know, unsettling nature of things always shifting and transforming and moving about. It's called King Star King. It's an adult swim animated show. It's like a cartoon. It's beautifully animated. Its framing device is kind of like He-Man, except it's like, yeah, it uses a little bit of fairy tale elements and kind of Disney tropes. And it's kind of fed through this machine of like Ren and Stimpy and like this insane gore. And the stories are often quite simple. All the characters are really disgusting and everything is really weird. Like this main character, King Star King, uh, he kind of looks like an ugly version of He-Man drawn by a kid. And like all the characters, they're constantly having their brains blown out and they're growing out anew and they're shifting and changing. And uh, it's, it's really colourful and it's so insane. It's so funny. It's so weird. It's really disgusting. But it has its own beauty. It's this guy, J.J. Villard, who's also done Super Jail. And he actually had a show this year or last year called uh, J.J. Villard's Fairy Tales, which is pretty good as well. Um, not as good as Super Jail, the first season, and King Stalking. I just love King Stalking. It's so unrelentingly mad. Yeah, it's great. I really like all the stuff he's done. But yeah, it's, it's just constantly insane. And I love the sort of uh, the sheer madness of it. Yeah. All the characters, they have like loads of muscles, like kind of badly drawn muscles. And all the women have like gigantic bosoms and like the body shapes and the way he draws wrinkles and sweat. And yeah, it, it reminds a little bit of like the madness of the animation of Ren and Stimpy. Like everything's twisting and stretching. Like in general, the sort of the weird and uh, experimental uh, animation of the 90s, this like hyperfixation on body elements and stuff it's yeah. really interesting but it's even hypercharged hair and like it, it can be as gory and as sexual as it likes basically. yeah but it's like it's so sexual and <laughs> so gory and yeah. i love that it's just so unrepentantly disgusting yeah and it's also like the scope is epic like it is a space horror opera thing with like giant gods battling it out and like lightning in the sky and magic and transformations and fat monstrous gangster bosses I think they're not that many episodes. They're like 10 minutes. Yeah, I recommend checking it out because it's so funny. It's so weird. And it's like it's like hyper-Americanized or like this sort yeah. of TV fixation of like, yeah, it's really something else. Yeah. I, I would totally recommend that too. Yeah. It's great. How about you, Sveta? Did you have a recommendation for us? 
I do actually. So I have a recommendation that's also from uh, South America. All right. Although it's quite different from uh, La Casa Lobo. It's called uh, Pixot. It's a Brazilian film directed by Hector Babenco. Uh, it's from 1981. And it's sort of like, I guess a good comparison would be um, Christian F. Because it does involve young people and drug addiction mm. and uh, homelessness. But the sort of central character is Pixot and, uh, or I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Pixote. 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 But yeah, he's played by uh, Fernando Ramos da Silva. And he's like, he's, he looks like he's six or seven in this movie. So it makes it kind of horrible. And he's basically a homeless kid. He ends up in an institution. He befriends some people. There's a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, sexual abuse, a lot of drugs. Uh, it's very intense. It feels very like sort of in the vein of realistic movies of that era, like Christiana F. It's very also quite um, very non-romantic of the lifestyle. It's very, like there are some concessions to like the movies of the time like the music feels a bit dated in a way that a lot of movies of the early 80s does where yeah, the, sort yeah. of the musical uh understanding of movie making hasn't quite caught up with mm. the sort of emotional and script writing sort of techniques of the time but apart from that it's it's very beautifully played by a lot of young people who weren't really actors but like very beautifully portrayed and heartbreaking and there's some uh, lgbtq uh, representation that feels very like non-judgmental mm. in a way that very few movies of the era does so that's very interesting too and uh, and it's just really sad it's just this sort of odyssey through this sort of sordid spaces of adults trying to take advantage of young children and the main character is kind of sad too because the actor died at age 19 he sort of went back to the streets after this failed mm. attempt of being an actor and he was um, shot dead by the police uh, at age 19 so that it's just really sad but it's a beautiful movie it's really really just uh, i mean it breaks your heart it's very very unpleasant uh, but it also has a lot of heart like the characters there's great chemistry between them like the actors it's uh, beautifully written beautifully made who directed it it's uh, hector benko a quite famous brazilian director and it's from 80 81 well, that does sound interesting yeah so i recommend that and there's, of course, a lot of South American movies and stuff that we could delve more into. I'm Absolutely. not too well-versed in it, to be honest, so I'd like to learn more. Yeah, definitely. There's lots of good stuff and much to explore, I think. Thank you for that, Sveta. That's a great recommendation. And thank you, other listeners, for listening to us talk about unpleasant movies. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. You can also check out our Instagram, Unpleasant Movies Instagram, where we have artwork and occasional quizzes for films. We have a list of written movie with films that we find unpleasant and good or interesting. So you can see there, maybe you'll find some upcoming things that we're going to talk about. And also over at Goodreads, we have a list of books that have informed our exploration of unpleasant movies. If you're interested in like exploring more of the intellectual side, you can check out that just called Unpleasant Movies reading list. The next film we will be discussing, we're kind of shifting gear a little bit. It is kind of weird and surrealistic in one way, but it's much more funny. It's a funny, weird, fucked up movie. It's beautiful. It's great. It's unpleasant. It's called The Greasy Strangler. Yeah, you can look forward to that. I think it's going to be a great discussion. 
And the music for this episode was done by Umulium. That's you, Sverre Ogor. That's right. And uh, you, Skarling. And the artwork was made by me, Thomas Simonsen Barmbra. And that's it for us today. So we hope you have a pleasant evening and goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.